Welcome to the Starnet Regions 1 and 3 podcast. Illinois Starnet envisions a future where early childhood professionals and families have the supports needed to provide all children with a high-quality, equitable education in inclusive environments. Starnet's mission is to promote evidence-based inclusive practices for young children with disabilities, professional development to support educators and families, meaningful child outcomes through innovative and engaging learning experiences. To find out more about Starnet Regions 1 and 3, please visit starnet.org home. Hello, this is the DAP series on the Starnet Regions 1 and 3 podcast, where we explore the fourth edition of the DAP position statement and recently published Developmentally Appropriate Practices and Early Childhood Programs book. Today's episode focuses on affirming individuality and understanding context through the use of strengths-based language. I'm your host, Emily Riley, and today I have the honor of speaking with Dr. Annie Ranking. And Annie is the founder of Ranking Education Consulting. She's an author and a researcher. Welcome, Annie. Ah, yes. Thank you so much for having me come on today. Yes, we're glad to have you. Glad to reconnect again. Um, yes. So in this podcast series, I have basically been reaching out to colleagues and professionals in the field um, that have you know, in-depth knowledge and passion and experience with concepts that come up in the DAP book. And in chapter three, Context Matters, NAUIC identifies one of the roles of educators as being uh, to affirm all children and families that they support and work with. And they identify a variety of practices, um, some of those including taking steps to address personal biases, uh, recognizing and understanding cultural differences, valuing funds of knowledge of children and families, and also using strengths-based inclusive language. And they go on to identify uh, deficit language as the opposite of strengths-based inclusive language and um, consider an example of a microaggression. And I know in 2021, you co-authored the book, Implicit Bias, An Educator's Guide to the Language of Microaggressions. Um, So that's why I was so excited to talk to you today about this topic. Um, So can you just, let's just start off with um, sharing um, what exactly is the language of microaggression and why is it so important for early childhood educators and professionals to understand um, what microaggressions are? Yeah, so the language of microaggressions are implicit bias and implicit bias is um, a term that has been around for um, years, but has really gained traction um, during one of the last presidential elections and then definitely around 2020 with the murder of George Floyd. And so um, implicit bias has really come to light. However, there are... um, I don't want to say different definitions of implicit bias, but sometimes there's different understandings of what implicit biases are. And so one of the things to remember is that implicit biases in humans, we are innately um, kind of wired to have implicit biases. Implicit biases in and of themselves are not bad. Um, As humans, we have to be able to very quickly decide if something is in our group or out of our group because it was a survival method evolutionary wise. However, when we talk about implicit biases in the term of microaggressions, it's a negative impact 
on another group um, who may be in what's called your out group. So people who don't share an identity with you. Um, and it's not um, necessarily, doesn't always necessarily need to be vindictive or um, argumentative, but it's something that if you're not aware of your implicit biases, implicit means you know, unconscious, um, it needs to be, become part of our conscious so that we can definitely work against it. And so the language of microaggression are the actions and words that happen in our, in our communities and especially in our early childhood environments. So it's important for early childhood educators to understand microaggressions because microaggressions devalue families, devalue students, mostly, usually unintentionally. But it also can impact the curriculum in an in a early childhood classroom. It can impact how families are engaged, um, how you respond and how you what you call families. It can also impact how you um, interact with coworkers. Um, and so there are lots and lots of different concepts around microaggressions that that impact not only our words, but also our actions. And so one of the things that I think is really important as we're talking about the language of microaggressions and implicit bias is the idea of intent versus impact. We are very well intentioned as human beings. Um, however, our intention doesn't matter when we're talking about the language of, of microaggressions, implicit bias, because it is the impact that actually matters. If I have impacted you negatively because of the language or the actions that I'm doing or the curriculum I'm implementing, then that in, in and of itself is the language of microaggressions because I'm devaluing you or creating an unsafe space for you as a family or as a child. Okay, thank you. That was really helpful. Um, I know that intent versus impact for me when I first learned about it was very um, thought provoking and helped me really um, understand this a little more um, deeply. And so I appreciate you bringing that piece up. Um, and also you talk about that it's um, so it's unconscious, but we need to bring it to the conscious, right? So that we can actively work towards it. So as you said, some many educators like they might not be aware that they are using this language of microaggression, right? Um, and so could you just share like some specific examples of what that might sound like? Like what might be something that um, educators might say or their viewer perspective when talking about families and children um, so that maybe we can help some people, you know, reflect and think about bringing this to their conscious. Yeah, so I'm going to use three examples. I'm going to do a curriculum example. I'm going to do a, a, like a child example and then a family example. So the curriculum example um, would be saying, well, I don't have any students of color in my classroom, so I don't need to I don't need to make sure that there's the inclusion of black and brown skin in the books that I'm providing. In and of itself, that is a microaggression. That is an implicit bias because in our literature, it says that we need to have windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors in our in our in our classrooms. That means students need to be able to see themselves in the mirror. So yes, absolutely, you need to have books that represent your students, but you also need to have windows into other worlds, right? Windows into how other people live, people who may be different than us. And I'm not using other as in the concept of othering, but I'm using it as in the concept of diversity or differences. Um, and so you could have a classroom of all one race and ethnicity, but there's still diversity because of socioeconomic status, because of religion, because of family dynamics. Um, and so making sure that we're not just talking about 
the visible things, but we're also talking about the, the cultural things of what I like to refer to as the cultural iceberg. You can't know what family traditions are. You can't know what um, what family values are. You can't know what some of the history of families are because that's below the, the waterline on the iceberg. Um, and so really making sure that you have that curriculum aspect of having windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. Sliding glass doors in early childhood, I think, is really easy to explain. It's kind of essentially the project approach. You completely redo your whole classroom so that it's an immersive environment. I like to explain it as you're binge watching a show on Netflix and you feel like you're part of the, the characters. The characters are your new BFFs um, because you have created that environment. And it's not just an environment that is um, that that sh that is representative of your community and what you think your community is, but representative of a variety of aspects of your community. For children, it's instead of saying boys and girls, which um, in and of itself is not necessarily bad, but thinking about how you can be inclusive for um, for children who as young as five years old um, can start to feel as if they're not in the right body, that you say friends or you say pals or you say you use those more gender neutral terms instead of depicting boys and girls. There is my co-author on this on the book that we're talking about, Teresa Boulay. A lot of her research focuses on young early childhood students who already know that they don't they are not in the their, their correct gendered body. And there's a lot of research that she's doing on transgender, um, on, on, tra on, on children who, who are transgender. Um, and so really making sure that you have that gender neutral language is important. And then finally for families, um, making sure that you don't refer to families as moms and dads, because not everyone has one mom and one dad. Not everyone has a mom and or a dad. Um, some people are raised by their older siblings. Some people are raised by their aunt or uncle. And so one of the things to really think about in that strengths-based approach is to say the big people in your family or the, um, the adults in your family or the grown-ups in your family. A colleague of mine from a long time ago, um, Megan Golby, she wrote a blog post um, probably two or three years ago and how um, she has started to use the word raisins in her family, as in I'm raising the children, like raisins, um, <laughs> the, the people who raise children. And that could also be a more neutral term than saying, if you don't have a mom and a dad, then you're not, quote, part of our community because we are referring to only moms and dads. Great, thank you, Annie. Um, one of the um, examples that is shared in the um, text here that we're referring to at DAP, um, they talk about some phrases such as, um, maybe unintentionally we might say like those families yeah. or talking about those families or um, inner city children. And they, they provide some alternatives. So rather than like those families um, versus, you know, these families and inner city children versus children in urban communities um, at risk, children versus children placed at risk. What are your thoughts about that? Like that, that type of language as well. 
Absolutely. Because um, it goes back to our unconscious understanding of some words and the weight that some words have. So when people use the word inner city, we all have something that come to mind, comes to mind, right? That's an implicit bias. And usually when we say inner city, we have most people think of one racial category. Most people think of one economic category. Most people think of um, maybe they might think of a, a community community context, violence, not violent, those types of things. And so those are very loaded words. And so um, thinking about the history and the loadedness of words is also important. I like that you bring up the term at risk also, because in literature that is really, really pushed against. Um, and it's not that children are at risk, it's that they've been put in situations that have equated to being at risk. Um, and so going along those same terms, um, a lot of times we will refer to um, BIPOC, which is Black Indigenous People of Color. We might refer to um, a BIPOC group as a minority group or marginalized, historically marginalized, but those are both deficit thinking. And so changing that language to say they are a historically excluded population, because that puts the onus on the people who are doing the exclusion. It doesn't put the onus on the people who are being excluded. They're a historically excluded population because the majority of society has excluded them. Um, and so it's not it's not something bad about a, a a group that has been historically excluded. It's something that society systemically or institutionally needs to think about and, and change in order to change the historical context of how they're included in a society. Oh my gosh. I feel like I, I need you to like say that one more time. Like that's like so important, right? How you said like the onus is not on that group. It's on the, on society and the, yeah. Wow. Sorry. I was just writing down a couple of things too. Cause <laughs> I'm always learning too, and I appreciate having this opportunity to um, chat with you. So thank you for sharing that. Um, with Starnet, um, you know, our mission, our emphasis really, uh, we focus a lot on supporting young children and their families, um, have children with disabilities. And so oftentimes we see that deficit-based thinking as well. Um, when people might talk about children with disabilities. And so um, for our listeners who uh, might be working with young children who do have disabilities or in an inclusive um, classroom, it also kind of, um, I think it's important to really think about that language too that's being used. So, um, And Emily, going back to one of the past podcasts, um, so um, Evelyn Green, Emily Ropars, and myself, um, did a series of five of these podcasts with Starnet um, maybe a year, a year and a half ago about anti-bias curriculum. And one of the things that Emily Ropars mentioned, and I thought about it and really consciously used the, um, used this concept as I've, as I've moved forward, is that when we talk about handicapped parking or handicapped, handicap accessible, handicap, you know, like being handicapped accessible, um, that that is really deficit language. And what we need to instead say is not use the word handicap, but use accessible. So like accessible parking or the accessible doorway, or because it's the idea of that we are making it accessible, right? Like the, it's not handicapped. We're not focusing on the handicapped part. We're focusing on the accessibility part. And so some of those things are just, you constantly, as you said, are learning, constantly thinking about, oh, you know what? This is a term I've used my whole life, but it actually has a really 
negative connotation. When I really stop and think about what this word is saying, it's not that that this is a handicapped spot. It's an accessibility spot. It's it's creating accessibility to individuals who may need to park there. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that example and bringing up um, that podcast series. So yeah, if you, if this conversation is interesting to our listeners today, I encourage you yeah, to kind of scroll back a little bit further and take a listen to that. Um, it was a five-part series, right? You said, Annie? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Anti-bias, um, education and curriculum. So yeah, excellent um, conversations there. Um, all right. So you know, with DAP in the book, there's a, a very strong emphasis on the three core considerations, one of them being context and, you know, thinking about the context of educator and families and like the system as a whole. Um, but I think one of the big goals is that, you know, we want to affirm individuality, um, support positive social emotional development and health of young children and families. And so how do you see like the use of strengths-based inclusive language um, supporting that larger goal? Yeah, so one of the things that my mind immediately went to when you were talking about that is the idea of the platinum rule versus the golden rule. Um, And so for a long time, we've all been raised with the idea of the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. And that's very centered on you. But when we're thinking about strengths-based language, individuality, the uniqueness of individuals, the needs of individuals, the social-emotional learning needs of individuals, um, we really want to focus on the platinum rule. Treat others the way they want to be treated. And so really thinking about um, how might um, individuals want to be treated who have been historically Um, excluded? How might individuals want to be treated if they um, are having social emotional needs? One of the examples I often use in uh, professional development I provide is that then an example of the golden rule versus the the platinum rule is that in many early childhood programs, we have a calm down area or kind of a soft spot or, you know, like an area for, you know, sensory needs. And most of those areas have very soft things, soft stuffed animals, soft pillows, soft, you know, carpets, those types of things. If I was a child in your classroom, that is not comforting to me. We're designing a classroom around the golden rule of this is how everyone calms down. For me, if I, if you were really engaging in the platinum rule, as a, if I was a child in your classroom, you would really be thinking about what are the individual needs of Annie. And the individual needs of Annie, when she is anxious or um, or needs to calm down, it's hard things. I want a hard wooden chair. I want a hard plastic, you know, cube to. Pre- I want that that really intense pressure. And I don't want something soft that I can sink into. And so it's the idea of you need to understand the individuality and the individual growth and the social emotional development of each of your individual families and children, because you really want to focus on the platinum rule. How do they want to be treated? How do they want to um, be engaged in this classroom rather than, well, everyone else wants this. So everyone wants this. And this is how it's always been. And this is how I get calmed down. Um, and so really thinking about the difference between those those two concepts. Okay, thank you. I appreciate like, it's so helpful when you share some um, very concrete examples to help us reflect on because yeah, I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, even a lot of the early childhood literature, like um, on setting up areas, you know, a lot of times there is that focus that, um, yeah, the emphasis has a lot of times been on that soft aspect, and they don't always include the other 
the wider picture of, of what uh, might work for each and each individual child in the classroom. So, all right. Um, so, so we know that implicit bias is something that's unconscious. Again, we're trying to bring it to the conscious. So this leads me to um, like, what are some of the recommendations that you have for educators, professionals, maybe even administrators who might be um, prioritizing this in their program? Um, yeah. What kind of recommendations might you have for them to start being more aware of microaggressions? Yeah. So one of the first ones is continually reflect, right? Being able to develop a culture within your, um, within your center, within your school, that you can hold each other accountable, that you can call people into the conversation and it's okay rather than calling people out. You're calling them in and saying, hey, actually that term is really loaded. And this is what I'm hearing when you're saying that term. I wonder if there's another word that we can use or thinking through um, the activities that you have at your center. Do you have a donuts with dad and a muffins with mom? That's really exclusionary, right? And that's a microaggression that we've quote always done it but it's really an exclusionary practice. And so thinking not only about the activities, but about the language, what's being sent home, um, and really being able to have those concrete critical conversations where no one is offended, but you have a respectful professional conversation about here's what I'm hearing when that word is used. And here's the history of why I hear it that way. Let's, Let's see if we can think of another word. Additionally to that, One of the easiest, most concrete ways to engage with with children around this is through books. So just as I said at the beginning of this, you want to make sure that you have books and materials and other types of literature in your classroom that have windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. And so there um, are um, the website Learning for Justice, which used to be Teaching Tolerance, has great, great resources. But then two websites that I often guide people to if they're saying, but I don't really know what books to use, right? Because picking books is really a should be a very time consuming, thoughtful process. Who's the author? Does the author represent the individuals who are being um, who are the characters in the book? Does the message actually have an asset based mindset or a strengths based mindset or is it actually a deficit based mindset? What is the language that's included? So really kind of reflecting on that. So one of the um, resources is we need diverse books, which is a great resource. The other resource is here we read. Um, The individual who runs this not only has a website, but also a podcast and just talks about really how to um, how to choose great, diverse books, but also how to engage in great, diverse books at at various levels, including early childhood. All right. Excellent. So I will be sure to add those links into the episode notes for our listeners today. and I just can't help but think because, of course, this is the DAP series. So when your one of your recommendations was like reflective, like basically reflective practice, and always talking about this, reflecting on yourselves, and just creating that culture, um, demonstrating professionalism as an early childhood educator is a huge emphasis as well in DAP, and and very much um, talking about creating that culture where people are reflecting on their own um, experiences and how that impacts who they are as an educator or professional. Um, So yeah, so I just wanted to kind of highlight that as well. So, so many good nuggets here in this DAP book, I feel like. Um, All right. So as we wrap up, is there, are there any like final thoughts, something you didn't get a chance to share that you really want our listeners to hear today or 
Um, no, if you want to learn more, obviously reach out to the DAP book, reach out to Starnet, but also um, I would highly encourage you to um, purchase and or borrow a book from someone, um, the book that Teresa Boulay and myself wrote about implicit bias, the language of microaggressions. And so um, really thinking about, it's really written for educators and Teresa and I are both um, in the early childhood field. And so it's really is while we include everyone, we always have our early childhood mindset um, in the in the middle in the middle of it at the core of what we're working on. So, um, accessing that book and and seeing what else might be able to provide you some guidance on this journey that you're on. Okay, excellent. And that um, reminds me too a project you and I had worked on um, last year or the year before about. Um, it was Nadia Habanetta who would talked about yeah. the think was it thinking partner was that the right. term used yeah yeah so maybe find yourself a thinking partner too because some of this work it's it's important to have yeah somebody to kind of chat with and share perspectives with so well again thank you so much um, Annie for joining us today I will add your um, website to the resources too if people want to explore that further um, thank you to all the listeners today for joining us and um, please share the podcast with um, your fellow professionals and educators we will continue to um, be recording series or episodes in the DAP series all year round. So, all right. Thanks everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Starnet Regions 1 and 3 podcast. If you have any questions or concerns, please reach out by emailing starnet at wiu.edu or submit a request by clicking on the request services tab on our homepage.